You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. A bond market meltdown today, followed also by a stock market meltdown, and ARK Invest with some serious redemptions going forward. I'm talking to Jim Bianco, founder and president of Bianco Research LLC in Chicago. Jim, welcome back to Real Vision. Thanks for having me. So you saw what I was talking about. Uh, there are a number of different things that we can talk to. Uh, what's on my mind is because of those three is, you know, bond stocks and I would say uh, turbocharged stocks, which is what ARK Invest is all about. Uh, talk to me about uh, how you're looking at the carnage uh, today, both in terms of uh, just the here and now and your macro view. So let's start with the bond market. <clears throat> and you're right, it was carnage today. It was a 24 basis point range from 137 to 161 in the 10-year note. We haven't seen anything like that since the height of the pandemic crisis in March of last year. So it was an extraordinary day in the bond market. And add to that, we had a seven-year auction, uh, which might have been the worst seven-year auction that the, the Treasury's ever had. The bid-to-cover ratio was the lowest on record. Now, the data goes back to 2009 when they started the new seven-year. The, the tail of 4.4 basis points was the worst ever. Uh, the, the dealers wound up taking more of it than they did any time in the last eight years, meaning that regular investors didn't want it. So the bond market is not in a good place. And this is the exact opposite of what Chairman Powell was saying yesterday when he was saying that rising rates is a validation that they've got the right policies because it means that the market isn't pricing in ever increasing levels of confidence that the economy is going to recover. He's right that it can mean that. You know, as I like to say, rising rates are neither bullish or bearish for stocks. It depends on why they're rising. If they're rising for Paul's reasons, that the economy is recovering, real growth is returning, market's okay with them rising rates, raising rates. Um, raising rates and the long end going up. If, on the other hand, the market is whiffing out inflation, look at what commodity prices have been doing. Virtually every measure of uh, commodities are economically sensitive. You know, the industrials, oil, especially in the industrial space, they're near 10-year highs. The CRB raw industrial spot is at a 10-year high um, right now, and their chart patterns are vertical uh, uh, for the moment. If the market is, is sniffing out inflation, then it gets very bothered. The stock market gets very bothered by a rise uh, in interest rates. And that's what we've seen today. And also, when rates go up, like we've seen today, if, the, if a central bank steps in and tries to suppress those interest rates, you'll get a very bad reaction. Now, the reason I bring that up is yesterday, the Reserve Bank of Australia, their central bank, basically said enough with the rise. They stepped in with QE and they bought it, as many bonds yesterday as they did in any single day in March of last year. So they went right back to the March playbook and just started intervening in the bond market. Their 10-year their, their note went up 
11 basis points. Their bond market imploded on itself when their central bank stepped in and started buying. Point is, if you have a fear of inflation and you think yield curve control or the central bank buying is the answer, it actually makes it worse. And so this market seems to be transitioning with this rate rise from it's all growth, it's all good, to some fears about inflation coming into the system somewhere in, you know, between now and the end of the year. Yeah, you know, actually, I saw uh, Peter Bukvar uh, talking about this in a note that he released. He's a, a friend of both of ours. And he was talking about how actually maybe Powell should move in the other direction. Maybe he should pivot towards, you know, talking about reducing accommodation because that will cause people to say, okay, the Fed has some credibility here. Otherwise, they lose all credibility. Yeah, you know, the market, the market might be doing it for them. The last two times that the Fed has changed policy, a year ago and in the fourth quarter of 18, it was forced on them by the market. A year ago, the Fed had their meeting in, in late February, and they, they, they announced that funds rate's going to stay at 1.5% probably through the end of the year. The market, the stock market threw up on itself because it started to understand the pandemic, and within 10 days, they cut 50 basis points. In the fourth quarter of December, December of 2018, in the fourth quarter, stock market was selling off. Paul comes out on December 19th of 2018, says, we're going to reduce the balance sheet by $60 billion a month. And it's going to be automatic pilot. It's going to be like watching paint dry. Stock market threw up again on itself within January 4th. So what's that, 14 days later? No, now the new policy is patient and flexible, the so-called Paul pivot. And the market took off in the other direction. So it's always forced on them. Now, why I bring that up is if you look at the Fed fund futures, last week it was pricing in the first rate hike at the end of 23 in, uh, I'm sorry, at the end of 2022, early 2023. Today, it's now June. And we've already moved that up six months in the first rate. Now, that, of course, is over a year away, but it tells you where the market's thinking is that that rate hike keeps coming closer and closer. It's still 15 months away. It's not like it's going to happen right away, but this is the process of getting it into the market's thinking as it starts moving in this direction. So we... We're probably when Peter says, you know, you're right, that maybe the Fed should should start to at least acknowledge the inflation concerns. If they don't, the market will do it for them. It will continue to throw up on itself and it will eventually price in a rate hike like immediately. And then the Fed will have a real problem on its hands if this doesn't uh, you know, abate anytime soon. Yeah, a uh, lot of places we can go with that. I mean, one is towards equities. The other, I think, is toward the real economy. Let me actually uh, seg into the real economy, because I do want to talk about bonds spilling over into equities in some capacity. The real economy, uh, you look at the data that are coming out, it's, they're really, uh, it's, it's gangbusters. And this is, you know, I'm thinking about uh, these nowcasts. First, you have the nowcast for uh, the New York Fed. Then you have the nowcast for the Atlanta Fed. Those are two different nowcasts. Both of those are above 8%. I think the Atlanta Fed is at 9.6. Uh, real um, investment, real uh, change in investment for Q1 is at 22% under the Atlanta Fed's uh, measure. Those are really extreme numbers, and they're nowcasts that aren't, you know, they're based upon the real data that's already come out. 
They're not based upon you know $1.9 trillion in stimulus that's uh, potentially in the pipeline uh, after the end of, of next week. How do you see that playing into this inflation picture with oil on the background, uh, you know, rising to $63 a barrel? So let's summarize what we're, what we're talking about. The consensus opinion on Wall Street for 2021 uh, GDP growth is 5%. Paul was asked during the, um, his testimony this week if he could see 6% growth, and he said, sure, why not? And that would be the highest level since 1984. Goldman Sachs is at 7%. You got to back to late 70s to find a year where you've seen real growth to that extent. I've often said that interest rates move on nominal growth, nominal GDP. So real growth plus inflation. If you're going to start with 5% real growth and then throw something on top of that, in terms of uh, inflation, let's just use 2%. You're talking about 7% nominal? Um, that's going to really have an upward pull on interest rate. That doesn't mean that the 10-year has to go to 7%, because most likely next year, 22, you're going to see it pull back in the other direction after we have, we can only reopen once and have this big burst of activity once we've reopened, and then you'll see it moderate. But that's going to have a big upward pull uh, on interest rates, and the economy is definitely going to come back. Now, there's two, There's, as I see it, there's three big risk factors with that. One, I know you've talked a little bit about, and that's the variant, is that you know we've, we're all anticipating a reopening in the economy because we're all anticipating we're going to get a jab in the arm and it's going to be all done and we're going to be off to the races you know, in a, in a true post-pandemic world. And if a variant comes into place, that could, that could really uh, upset that quite a bit. The second thing that could upset that, I think, is inflation, is that if your nominal growth winds up being 7 or 8%, but it's a little bit less real growth and a little bit more inflationary growth, that could be a very big problem um, as well, too. Because why would that be a problem? Let me put some numbers on, these inflation num uh, on this inflation talk. I, you know, people ask me, do I think inflation is coming back? And I say, yes. And they say, what's your target? And I say, 2.6% core PCE. Come on, 2.6, that's not inflation. That's a 28-year high. And if you add on top of that a belief that that number will stick after you get through the so-called base effects of rolling off March and April of last year, and you get a, a positive real yield, you could be seeing the 10-year note sometime next year pushing 3%. Now, most people in the real economy would say, well, that's no big deal, 3% borrowing rates versus 1% borrowing rates. Equity investors might say that. That's a big problem for the bond market. And if it's a big problem for the bond market, it's going to be a big problem for the real economy. So yeah, the real economy is roaring back right now. Uh, and everybody's expecting this massive growth. And as long as we get it without inflation, we're going to be good. But there's so many, you know, caveats in there. What about a variant? What about if we do get some kind of inflation? What if the stimulus doesn't come through as everybody thinks? And when I talk about stimulus, I'm not just talking about the 1.9 trillion, because as soon as they get done with that, they're supposed to take a breath and then start on a $2 trillion infrastructure program right after that, if they come up short with any of that as well, too. So it, there's a, for the real economy, it looks good, and there's no reason to say it's not good. 
But there are a lot of risk factors that you have to consider as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, when you talk about inflation being one of those risk factors, I'm thinking about two different things there. I'm thinking about gold and I'm also thinking about break evens. Uh, the reason is, is because I've been looking at the price of gold and it hasn't been going up. And it makes me think, OK, if I'm thinking about gold from a real interest rate perspective, if I'm thinking about the nominal GDP target that you're talking about, how much of that is inflation and how much of that is real GDP growth, i.e., how much of a real yield are we getting in these uh, in these rates? Uh, if, if we're getting a real yield, i.e., if there's no more financial repression, uh, that might be good for the economy, but it's bad for gold. Maybe that's why gold's stagnating. But on the other hand, I also see the uh, tips market, and I see that we have an inverted curve. That is where you know the longer dated uh, break evens are actually lower than the break evens that are you know closer in date. As if this is a temporary bout of inflation. If we get any inflation, and then it'll it'll uh, uh, re recede over time. How do you make heads or tails of, of those things in terms of thinking about nominal GDP, how much of that is real, and how much of that is inflation? Yeah, so let me take them one at a time. Let's talk about gold. And to do gold, I got to channel my inner Ash Bennington. I don't have a red microphone, but I'll do my best here. <laughs> uh, you got to throw in cryptos in there. They are the competition for gold. So Bitcoin and the other cryptos are a way um, you know, to invest. Because ultimately, what is gold? It is, you know, if you're worried about the health of the financial system and inflation is a worry about the health of the financial system, you want to get your money out. Well, there's really no way to get your money out direct totally, but the closest you could come to that would be gold. And cryptos now fall into that same category. If you're worried about the financial system, again, inflation is a type of worry. You get your money out by going into the crypto markets. You got to put those together. I think part of the reason gold is struggling is it's got competition from Bitcoin and some of the other cryptos. Inflation break-evens, that is a dynamic that gets a little bit more complicated for the following reason. The biggest buyer of inflation break-evens in the last year has been the Federal Reserve. They have bought more TIPS bonds than the Treasury has issued. The amount of TIPS bonds outstanding after Federal Reserve holdings is less now than it was a year ago. So the Fed has an enormous footprint in that market to set those rates wherever they want to set those rates. We've got negative real yields. They were, last I looked, they were negative 68 basis points about an hour or so ago when I looked at them. The 10 year yield, in other words, the 10 year real yield is trading below the expected inflation rate by 68 basis points. If we're expecting 5% growth, 6% growth, 7% growth, that number should be positive. That number should be discounting a big burst of economic activity, which is usually a positive number. Why is it so negative? Well, it's either telling us, the tips market alone is either telling us that there's going to be no growth, and that we're really going to wind up turning around and going the other way. Well, you're not seeing that in the stock market. I mean, bigger picture, it's, it's nearer to its all-time highs. Interest rates are going up as well, too. So maybe what it is is you've got this 800-pound gorilla just stepping all over the market with its purchases, which is the Federal Reserve, which is why I've looked at the 
tips break even market. And I said, you could kind of look at the trend of what break evens are doing, and it's been irregularly higher. But that's about as far as I could take it right now because I'm afraid of the manipulation in that market. The Fed now owns nearly 25% of all tips outstanding. A year ago, before the pandemic hit, they owned 8% of all tips outstanding. So where are tips break-evens? Wherever Jay Powell wants tips break-evens to be, because he's the big player in that market. Right. So, I mean, basically, we're, we're, you know, price uh, signals have been distorted. We can't really use those and, and, and understand it. You, you, know, you know, can I just uh, jump in and that there's a, a British economist, um, Charles Goodhart, he's got the Goodhart Law, and he says uh, that yes. uh, uh, um, uh, if a measure becomes a target, it ceases being a measure. So if the Fed is going to start playing in the tips market and target it, it can't be a measure anymore. And we all still think of it as a measure. You can't be both at the same time. Kind of like uh, of the Fed funds right market. You know, if the Fed targets it, it can't be a measure of the health of the short-term interest rate market because it's been targeted as well, too. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, Jim, what about this uh, interplay between equities and uh, bonds? Because, you know, the narrative basically is that, uh, you know, there's a Goldilocks economy where good things happen in terms of real GDP growth, uh, you got uh, a, a steepening yield curve, and uh, and you you have people coming back to work, and it's all good. But just let's make sure that the 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 steepening yield curve doesn't get out of control. What we've seen is uh, at some point earlier today, we saw seventy basis points of steepening in the first two months of the year. You know, so from ninety basis points to. 160 basis points. That's a lot of steepening in two months. That's not a Goldilocks outcome. What sort of impact does that have on equities? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, the, the yield curve is essentially a duration play, as we say, like the same in the bond market, because the front end is anchored down around zero. It doesn't move very much. So the whole yield curve is about whether or not the 10-year yield's going up or down. And it has been soaring over the last couple of weeks. As I was joking around with somebody yesterday, it's like, you know, the 10-year went above 150 today. Do you know when it went above 140? That was yesterday that it first broke 140. Right. I mean, you know, and when did it go above 160? That was this afternoon is when it went above 160. So this market is, is not being orderly um, at all. What does it mean for equities? There's, there's two things that I mean, for, from one respect, it's very positive for the banks it's very positive for the financials. They like a steeper yield curve. They've been very good performers. I'm personally not a big fan of the banking system long-term. I think it's got tremendous headwinds that it's going to have to deal with. But over the short term, it is a high beta interest rate play. And that's what you've got going with the, with the banks. The bigger, the bigger market goes as well, too. I think <laughs> the idea that rates and the stability of interest rates signaling a strong economy should help the market advance in a orderly way, maybe a rotation towards the cyclical stocks a little bit with the advance. But when you start getting higher rates and the fear of inflation coming in, it then hits the mar I think the stocks that are the most overvalued. And that gets to, you know, the other thing you mentioned, like the arc type of stocks. They have the highest P.E. ratios, by the measures that you look at, they have the highest valuations in the market. 
So rising rates are going to cause them to wobble the most uh, as we move forward from here. And that is going to be a fear. They'll probably cause, like I said, the banks will wobble the least. After that, maybe some of the industrials and some of the basic material stocks will wobble a little bit less after that because they'll be benefiting from a higher nominal growth. And maybe, um, uh, you know, with the, the bull market and commodities as well, too, they know how to play those as well. So the, the, I think that while we are stuck in this wobbly interest rate environment, if you look down to the non-profitable tech stocks, if you look to the, um, you know, the startups, the SPACs, that type of, of, of uh, business, I think that they're going to suffer the most precisely because of their valuations. If they weren't so richly valued, they wouldn't have such a problem if we had a big move in rates, but it's because of their valuations that they've that they're really struggling with it. Yeah, and uh, how do you see the fangs of the world, which are relatively richly valued, but nowhere near as richly valued as those companies, and they have you know gobs of earnings to to play with? You know, they. <clears throat> I think the law of large numbers has largely hit the fangs right now, uh, and what I mean by that is you know. The, the five or six, if you throw Microsoft in there too, the, the six fang stocks are $5 trillion or $6 trillion in market cap as well. And if you look at them all, um, they've all collectively done nothing since September. They've been just meandering sideways right now uh, as well. They, they might be transitioning those companies. When you say they have gobs of earnings, they might be transitioning themselves from high-flying uh, type of uh, growth stocks to more of a cyclical play. Now, I don't think they're all the way there just yet, but they seem to be playing themselves out. And they're not doing you know, th this whole idea that they're not doing a lot because I think they're losing some of their constituency. If you want to play in the growth sector, you go play the, you know, you go play the, the plug powers and the Zooms and the Neos of the world. Um, if you're afraid of those companies and you want to own something safe, you look at the Procter and Gambles, and you look at maybe the GMs or something along those lines. Some of the healthcare stocks. But so, who plays these big cap stocks right now? Uh, they're like the, the domain of the index funds is really what drives them. There's really not a whole lot to get you excited about getting into them. There's nothing to really sell them. So they meander sideways. And now that they're producing huge cash flows and huge profits. You can start making the case that they're just becoming, you know, another version of cyclical or maybe even value stocks. Again, they're not there yet, but I think they're transitioning to that bucket away from the real growth bucket. Yeah, you know, um, going back to uh, Ark Invest, I was thinking about the redemption, which is what I said at the top of the show, and what sort of impact it might have, given how large. Uh, that company is as a uh, investor into the space of these companies that you're talking about, like Tesla, as an example. And we had a huge redemption, supposedly, and we're talking about likely professional money. You know, people who are professional money managers pulling their money out and uh, reallocating it in some capacity. And even though you know that there, that might just be a one-off. It could well have some sort of uh, impact on the market because of the size of the the redemptions that we're talking about. Are you at all concerned that you know we could see an air pocket that's relatively large 
uh, in parts of the, uh, the the market, like Tesla, which is now an S and P 500 company, simply because of the rotation that seems to be ongoing right now. <clears throat> Not yet. So as far as the arcs of the world go, you know, up front, I am a huge Kathy Wood fan. I think that she has been just a, a, a trailblazer in the way that she's structured her investment research, her transparency, and the way that she's been investing. You know, she doesn't hide. She posts her positions every single day. And to her credit, which has made me less worrisome, is last week, last week, she was warning the market was overdone and the market could be ready for a swift sell-off. And she was prepared for that exact eventuality. And she even said they've been using the big fang stocks, which we were just talking about, as cash. I mean, this is their thinking, right? Their cash substitute is, oh, just throw it in Apple. You know, that, that, that's cash for them. And they, and they did this last spring. When the market sells off, they actually will sell out of these big liquid tech stocks that they could sell and go in and add more names. Tuesday, she was quoted on Bloomberg as saying that they were aggressively adding names to Tesla, even with the, uh, the, uh, the potential of the redemptions that they've been having as well, too. Look, their numbers have always been very volatile. Billion-dollar-plus days in and out of money is nothing new for them, at least over the last six months or so. Uh, with their extraordinary growth. So for now, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt and the market the benefit of the doubt. Wood said she was expecting something like this. She had a game plan. A year ago, they did the same thing. When the market tanked in March of last year, they sold out of all their big liquid names and they bought all their little names and it turned out to be a spectacular winner. And I think that they're doing the same now. Come back to me and we have three or four more days like this, a week or two like we've seen today. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll start to rethink that right now. But they didn't seem to walk into this flat-footed, you know, you know, just completely shocked that this market fell. So I think that, that, that they and that sector, they'll, they'll make it through. Now, with that said, it is a highly volatile sector. And, you know, so you could look at it and say, wow, they, they've sold off 15 or 20 percent. Yeah, that's what they do. Uh, and then when they bounce back, they bounce back really hard uh, as well, too. So uh, final uh, thoughts on this, Jim. Uh, uh, give me a sort of a forward-looking view. What are you looking at going forward, whether it's the real economy or markets? Uh, what's your time frame to look forward? I think the market is going to have itself a real issue here with the bond market. As the bond market goes forward from here, and it is deeply, bond prices are deeply oversold and probably due for a, a rebound. I thought that last week, too, and, and it didn't happen. So we'll see if there's going to be some kind of a rebound. But as we move forward from here, I think that the bond market is going to be the key. Does this, does this relentless rise in rates find itself some kind of a, a peak and maybe a counter trend rally? Uh, if so, the stock market, I think, can breathe a big sigh of relief and go up. But I think the biggest problem the bond market is going to have is the so-called base effect. Because if, if rates go up and people say, aha, look, there's inflation. See, there's some signs of inflation. Oh, the, you've automatically got a dismissal of it. Yes, we know because of the base effects. We know we're going to drop off March and April of last year. And we know that the inflation numbers are going to go up. Paul told us that 15 times yesterday. Everybody knows that's going to happen. 
So to say we've got inflation, yeah, of course, it's going to be higher in 60 days than it is now. Um, so, But the real question is, beyond that base effect, where is inflation going to go? That's going to keep everything a little bit unsure in the bond market. If we didn't have that, we could maybe get a little bit more of a definitive answer out of bond prices and out of where the bond market's discounting. Is it discounting inflation? Is it not discounting inflation? What's it really see? So I really think that the biggest issue the market's going to have is going to be interest rates. I'll still stick with my idea. I think they're deeply oversold. We might see a counter-trend rally, and you'll get some relaxation out of the, um, out of the stock market and move higher from there. <clears throat> as far as the economy goes, I think what we've got to start to see in the economy is some real signs of job creation. Today's claims number, 720,000 or so, down 100,000, is being dismissed because last week was all the big storms. And, you know, Texas from Kansas all the way down to Texas was closed because of big storms. A lot of people couldn't even file for claims last week as well. Maybe, maybe you know, that's not, maybe that's an incorrect assessment, but we'll need another week or two of post-storm data to start to see it. But if we really want to see the economy start to really hum in terms of those five, six, seven percent growth rate numbers, I'd really like to see those claims numbers get down to half a million, 400,000, you know, in the next three months or so, at least showing that we've got some, some progress in that respect. Because if we keep printing seven, 800,000 claims every week, it's really going to start to question as we move forward from here, this whole idea about the booming growth that we have. It's got to translate into some kind of a job thing. Otherwise, it's going to be a bit of a pyrrhic victory that we've got a lot of GDP growth without a lot of job growth. Yeah, well said, Jim. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming on the program. This is a yeah, a new thing, having you on uh, the daily briefing. I'd like to have that more often. Uh, really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.